Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Today, we're going to be taking a look back at a pair of films that were released three weeks apart in the late spring of 1983, which in and of itself is not that interesting until you realize that both films were directed by the same person. We're talking about John Badham's Blue Thunder and John Badham's War Games. John McDonald Badham is an American filmmaker who was born in Luton, a small township about an hour's drive north of London, in August of 1939. His father, Henry Lee Badham Jr., was an American Army general stationed in Britain to help train British pilots at the start of World War II. In 1941, when John was two, his father would move his family back to their home in Birmingham, Alabama, worried about the regular Nazi bombings that were coming ever closer to Luton. John would have a normal life in Birmingham, or as normal a life as a young man from an affluent family could. As a teenager, he would attend Indian Springs School just outside Birmingham, whose motto was Dishere Vivendo, Latin for Learn Through Living. A working farm, students would attend class and grow their own food. When John was 13, his parents would bring home a little sister, Mary, who at the age of nine would be cast as Scout Finch in Robert Mulligan's adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. John wasn't the greatest student at Indian Spring, but he was good enough to do his undergraduate work at Yale in philosophy. He would graduate in the spring of 1962. Before starting at the Yale School of Drama in the fall, John would accompany his sister Mary and their family to Hollywood, where she spent the summer on the Universal Studios lot shooting To Kill a Mockingbird. And there, John would get his first glimpse into the world that he would quickly become drawn to. He would earn a master's degree from the Yale School of Drama, and upon graduation, and inspired by his sister's early Hollywood success, he moved to Los Angeles, where he would land a job in the mailroom at Universal Studios. During his time there, he would move up through the ranks to casting, then cutting trailers, until he got an opportunity to direct episodic television starting in 1971. Some of the shows Batam would direct for include Canon, Kung Fu, Night Gallery, Police Story, and The Streets of San Francisco. 23 episodes for 12 different shows over two years in total. From there, Batam would seg into directing movies for television, six between 1973 and 1975. Batam was known for doing good work, on budget, and on schedule, and that would get him the chance to direct his first feature, the 1976 cult classic, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, starring James Earl Jones, Billy D. Williams, Richard Pryor, and Stan Shaw, which told the story of a group of Negro League baseball players during the final days of the league, just before the major league teams finally started signing black players. Batam remembers going to see the Birmingham Black Barons play in his youth, and his personal remembrances would help elevate the movie from possible exploitation fare to something truly special. I remember watching Bingo Long at least 50 times in my own youth, when there was only one cable movie channel available in my area called Channel One, where they'd play two movies a night, one at 6 and 10 p.m. and another at 8. It was my introduction to Jones and Williams and Pryor and Shaw 
and so many other great actors of color. And 45 years later, the film still pops with excitement and humor and a sense of loss for something truly special. But Batam wasn't Universal's first choice for director. When Universal started putting the film together in early 1975, they first approached a young filmmaker who had just finished his second feature film for the company. And that filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, was very interested in the film. But when his movie Jaws became the most successful film of all time, he would be able to get any film made he wanted, and he would use his newfound success to get close encounters of the third kind made. When the $9 million film came out in the summer of 1976, Bingo Long would become one of the year's unexpected hit films, grossing more than $33 million. But Batam wouldn't have time to enjoy his first taste of success because he was already busy directing his second movie in Brooklyn, an adaptation of a New York Magazine article called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, which told the story of a group of friends who spent all week looking forward to dancing at a local disco on Saturday nights. Its star was a young television actor, whose only big feature credit to that point was a secondary role in Brian De Palma's Carrie. But thanks to the disco craze at the time, a soundtrack that would sell more than a million copies in just the first two months of release, and an Oscar-nominated performance from its lead actor, Saturday Night Fever would become one of the biggest smash hits of the late 1970s. Fever was so hot, pun not necessarily intended, that the R-rated movie would be re-edited down to a PG version so that those teens and preteens who couldn't get into the theaters before could see it. But before Paramount could release the PG version, the R-rated version would have to be out of theaters for three months per MPAA rules. So, just after the first of the year in 1979, despite the film still doing decent business in theaters, Paramount would pull the film. And on March 30, 1979, the truncated, sanitized version arrived in theaters and promptly killed the film. But, to be fair, Disco was already on its way out by spring 1979, so it's likely the R-rated version would have been gone from theaters by then anyway. But Batam wouldn't have time to stress out about that either, for he was already hard at work in London on his third film, a fresh adaptation of an oft-told tale, one based on a 1924 stage adaptation of an 1897 novel, one that had become a big hit recently on Broadway. Unlike the source novel, the play, or the most famous version of the story released in two different versions in 1931, Batam's retelling of the legend of Count Dracula was set in England in 1913 and featured Frank Langella in his Tony-nominated role as the smoldering sexy count. Dracula was a lush and beautiful movie, with gorgeous cinematography by Gilbert Taylor, whose work included Dr. Strangelove, A Hard Day's Night, The Omen, and Star Wars. John Williams would contribute one of his most sensual scores, and the film would feature great supporting performances by Sir Laurence Olivier as Van Helsing, Donald Pleasance, and Kate Nelligan. The Broadway version of Dracula was such a big hit that, in addition to this official adaptation of the show, Werner Herzog would make his own version of the story, Nosferatu the Vampire, featuring Klaus Kinski and Isabella Gianni, and the silly comedy Love at First Bite, featuring George Hamilton as the world's tannest vampire. 
Love at First Bite would arrive in theaters three months before Dracula and would end up beating Batam's adaptation for audience attention, grossing nearly $12 million more. But Batam's movie would still gross more than double its production budget. After three films in three years, Batam would take a very short break from filmmaking before returning to the screen in the fall of 1981 with another screen adaptation of a hit Broadway show. But despite a cast that included Bob Balaban, John Cassavetes, Richard Dreyfus, Christine Lottie, and Kenneth McMillan, Whose Life Is It Anyway was too depressing for Christmas audiences, who rejected this story of a young man who fights for his right to end his life after he is paralyzed after a car accident. Grossing only $2.2 million against a $15 million budget, it would become Batam's first big miss. But again, Batam wouldn't have time to be too worried about his first bomb, as he would already be in Los Angeles making another movie. What brings you to air support? Kind of like the idea of it. No guns, no kicking in doors, you know, just quiet. Oh yeah. For Frank Murphy, policing the air has its ups. Awesome air support. And downs. just wanted to say, sir, that that was my fault. I talked Murphy into taking us there. You're supposed to be stupid, son. Don't abuse the privilege. Roy Scheider is Frank Murphy, a lone wolf. Freeze! Bozo, how many regulars come in the front door with a key? Who's about to become a guinea pig. I thought it was illegal to arm police helicopters. Well, that would depend on the circumstances, wouldn't it? Columbia Pictures presents Blue Thunder. Flying arsenal that hears through walls, sees in the dark, and thinks your thoughts. Wherever you look, the guns follow. It was designed for war-torn countries. One civilian dead for every ten terrorists. That's an acceptable ratio, unless you're one of the civilians. It was assigned to American cities. You're talking about ground control from the air? That's what this special detail is all about. They told Murphy to test it. They didn't tell him what it was for. Doesn't have these coppers and you can run the whole damn country. Who was behind it? Where are we? Federal building. Really? Hey, you want to find out what's going on in there? We certainly do. Hey, you gotta do me a favor. I want you to pick up a package for me. Why they chose him. Uh, he's totally unsuitable for our purpose. Don't stop for anything or anybody. For why they changed their minds. I never saw this guy before in my life. Come on, let's go. Well, not so fast. That's government's property. Give me that. But when Murphy went looking for answers, you got all this on tape? I got every word of it. If it gets back to me, I'll deny it. The answer uh -oh, uh -oh. came looking for him.
Thunder would begin its life as an idea brought forth by two screenwriter roommates, Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby, who shared an apartment in Hollywood in the mid to late 1970s, after O'Bannon had written John Carpenter's first feature film, Dark Star, but before he worked on the story for what would become Alien. The two men would regularly be woken up in the middle of the night by low-flying police helicopters patrolling the area, which I can totally believe because me and my then-roommate Dick Hollywood would experience the same thing on a nearly nightly basis when we shared an apartment just above Hollywood Boulevard when we lived there in the early 1990s. But their original script would have a stronger political angle, one where a constant police state controlled the civilian population with the assistance of high-tech surveillance and heavy armaments aboard state-of-the-art choppers. Their first draft of the screenplay would be completed just before Alien would open in theaters in May 1979 and featured their lead character, Metro Police Air Officer Frank Murphy, as a complete nutter nursing some deep psychological issues, going completely off his rocker and destroying a good chunk of the city before being taken down by the military. One of the screenwriters was friendly with someone who was friendly with an L.A. Police Department head of air support, and they would all get together, the novice writer and the highly decorated helicopter pilot, to go over the script, making refinements based on what was entirely too hokey to be believable, or correct concepts that maybe hit too close to home. By 1981, O'Bannon was a hot screenwriter, thanks not only to the success of Alien, but also to Heavy Metal an animated movie to which he contributed to two of the stories. Columbia Pictures would purchase the screenplay and would set a production schedule for the $22 million movie to begin shooting in the fall of 1981. Batam was still a fairly hot director at the time, and the sci-fi action concept of Blue Thunder would be something completely new to him, although, to be fair, the concept of quiet helicopters outfitted with infrared cameras that could see through walls microphones that could pick up even the quietest whisper from a hundred yards away, and outfitted with rockets and machine guns that could be aimed just by the pilot looking in a particular direction, was not quite as fictiony as he or the writers had hoped it would be. Roy Scheider, who was a star thanks to his appearances in movies like The French Connection, Jaws, and all that jazz, would be cast as the toned-down but still agitated Murphy, while Malcolm McDowell would become Frank's Main antagonist, Colonel Cochran. Daniel Stern, one of the young stars of the yet-to-be-released Diner, would play Frank's new rookie partner, Lyman Good. And the great Warren Oates would be Frank's captain at air support. But the real star of the film would be the Blue Thunder helicopters themselves. Columbia Pictures would spend nearly $400,000 buying a pair of French-made Gazelle helicopters, which were then transferred to California, to be modified for filming. But as cool as the choppers might have looked on screen, and they really looked cool on screen, the additional features added would weigh the vehicles down so much the filmmakers would have to resort to camera trickery to make the Blue Thunder choppers look fast and agile. In one of the climactic moments of the movie, when Murphy is able to get his chopper to do an aerial 360-degree loop over someone who was chasing him, was not shot with one of the actual choppers, no matter how much the real pilot said he would be able to do it. Although the film and its stunts would be filmed a full six months before the helicopter accident on the set of Twilight Zone the movie that would take the lives of Vic Morrow and two young Asian actors, the filmmakers were worried about the safety of their team, 
and chose to shoot the stunt with a miniature radio-controlled helicopter made up to look like Blue Thunder. To give the movie as realistic a look as possible, Batam would seek the help from the Los Angeles Police Department's air support. He would also make sure his second unit team shooting the flying sequences mounted cameras on the helicopters themselves and fly them over downtown Los Angeles. This would not be an easy accomplishment. Whoever knew piloting a helicopter or two only 50 feet above the streets of downtown Los Angeles would be so difficult? Especially when there'd still be real people walking the sidewalks and real cars being driven down the streets while filming was going on. To get the shots needed for the climactic finality, the production crew would need to work weekends, with the police cordoning off up to 12 blocks at a time for three minutes of filming before regular foot and motor traffic would need to happen for 15 minutes so the production could shoot again for another three minutes. One of the movie's most memorable moments would also happen thanks to the cooperation of the local police. Someone on the production had heard a police chopper pilot make mention of a term he used to describe the second person in the police helicopter cockpit when they were flying. Jaffo. Just another fucking observer. The production would find a way to get to use the term in the film organically, and once you saw the film, you never forgot it. Production would end just after the 1982 New Year's, and the film would be slated for a February 1983 release. But as the film was assembled and shown to Columbia executives, they would become more and more excited for the film. Before the summer was over, they would commit to moving the film back three months to a mid-May release and would increase the advertising budget to more than $8 million. They also planned on releasing the first trailer for the film with all of their Christmas 1982 releases, The Toy, Tootsie, and the film that would become the recipient of the Best Picture Oscar for the year, Gandhi. While Batam and his team were completing their post-production work on Blue Thunder, at the Burbank Studios in the late summer of 1982, another movie was about to begin production several miles down the road. America's front line of defense is this computer. It is totally secure. Or is it? You're really into computers, huh? Yeah. What are you doing? Dialing into the school's computer. Are those your grades? Yep. I don't think that I deserve it. Do you? You can't do that. Already done. <laughs> you can go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. I want to play those games. Wow. What? We got something. Games refers to models, simulations, and games which have tactical and strategic application. Greetings. Game time is near. Shall we play a game? Love to. Let's play. Global Thermonuclear War. Fine. All right. We have a launch detection. We have a Soviet launch. What the hell? a warning. No malfunction. Oh, my God. I repeat, confidence is high. Is this a game, or is it real? What's the difference? War Games. Begin playing June 3rd at a theater near you.
War Games was the brainchild of two friends, Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks, who had met in the late 60s while attending Yale University and would spend more than a decade plugging away at their craft in Los Angeles after graduation before writing the screenplay for War Games, which would become their first produced movie. In their original script, entitled The Genius, there were no computers. Instead, a brilliant but dying scientist befriends a rebellious teenage boy who he trains to become his eventual successor. Lasker and Parks had caught a documentary about modern-day geniuses, which included a segment on Stephen Hawking. Lasker was fascinated by an idea he had that this brilliant man could solve a complex scientific theory but become unable to convey his discovery to anyone because of his degenerative condition. But the story would change after the two writers met someone from the Stanford Research Institute who introduced them to a group of young adults who were developing what would become the first hacker community, as well as meeting someone from the RAND Corporation who envisioned to them a future where military workers could access a secure computer from their homes to work remotely. Crazy stuff, I know. The two writers would change the nature of the relationship between the scientist and the kid, add in a military aspect to the story, and work on a number of themes and subplots in and out until they came up with a storyline we now know and love. At one point, they would even weave in a space-based defense laser system that would protect America from a Russian nuclear missile strike but they would quickly abandon that idea because it just seemed too science fiction-y and unrealistic. Crazy stuff, I know. Martin Brest, who, after graduating from the American Film Institute, wrote and directed the surprise box office hit Going in Style in 1979, was hired to direct The Genius. For David, the high school student too smart for his own good, Brest had only one actor in mind. Matthew Broderick. At the time, Broderick was a virtual unknown. He was in the middle of filming his first movie, the Neil Simon comedy Max Dugan Returns, and he was weighing the offer to make the genius against an offer to play the supporting role of the conservative son in an otherwise liberal family in a television sitcom that would be called Family Ties. Brest also wanted another newcomer, Ali Sheedy, to play David's schoolmate and potential romantic interest, Jennifer. Like Broderick, she was in the middle of filming her first movie, Bad Boys with Sean Penn, when the offer came in to star in The Genius. She would immediately accept, both happy for a lead role in a major studio film and for the mostly light tone of the screenplay. The director would also include several veteran actors to play opposite the two young leads, including Dabney Coleman, Barry Corbin, and John Wood. Lasker and Parks had originally written the role of Falcon for John Lennon, but he would pass away before the screenplay was sold. Production would begin on the $10 million movie in the early fall of 1982, and almost immediately, there would be a major disagreement between Brest and the screenwriters and producer over the tone of the film. Lasker and Parks wanted the film to be fun and breezy and something the whole family could have fun with despite some of the more sinister tones, while Brest wanted to make a darker film, an almost Hitchcockian thriller about two young people who must escape from the clutches of a government that wants them for their hacking crimes. But 
Here's a funny bit of trivia for you related to the movie. In 1982, when the movie was in production, hacking was not a crime. It wouldn't become a crime until the introduction of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Originally introduced in 1984, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was created in part because of worries computer-related crimes might otherwise go unpunished, in which this specific movie, War Games, was used as an example of a realistic representation of the automatic dialing and access capabilities of the personal computer. One of the authors of the bill, Representative Dan Glickman of Kansas, would even open the first proceedings considering the bill with a four-minute segment of the movie, which he would state outlined the problem fairly clearly. Although, ironically, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act would not cover juveniles who committed hacking crimes like David in the movie. Although, if Brest had gotten his way once filming commenced, David and Jennifer would not have been juveniles at all, but college students. After 12 days of filming, as tensions mounted on the set, producer Leonard Goldberg had had enough of the problems. He would fire Martin Brest and put the production on a short hiatus while he searched for a new director. Goldberg had heard good things around town about how Blue Thunder had been shaping up, and he would call John Batham up to offer him the job. Batham was pretty much done with whatever he needed to do on Blue Thunder, and with the permission of Columbia Pictures, would find himself on the set of the now-titled War Games not two weeks later. The first days of production after Batham's arrival were tense for everyone. Broderick and Sheedy were too nervous to concentrate on their scenes, both of them worried that Batam was on the verge of replacing them. He wasn't, and in those first few days on set, he would go out of his way to make his crew, and especially his two young leads, feel comfortable. Batam would also bring in computer experts onto the set to advise the production crew and actors on how things should be done properly. The short delay in production and recruiting another director would add another $2 million to the budget, but the mood on set had improved dramatically even when a small stunt went awry. Towards the end of the movie, David, Jennifer, and Dr. Falcon are being rushed to the NORAD base, and the driver crashes through a gate in order to get the trio in before the base is sealed shut. But when the stunt was filmed, the jeep would unexpectedly skid out of control before flipping over when it smashed into the gate. Broderick and Sheedy and Wood were not involved in the stunt, and their stunt doubles were not hurt in the crash. But ever the director, Batam would quickly gather his actors and redo the scene. Now, instead of the three being driven to the front of the entrance, they would now need to run towards the entrance as the big metal door was closing, adding an important moment of tension which would help set the tone for the remaining part of the third act. When shooting on war games completed toward the end of 1982, Batam would find himself bouncing from the Burbank lot Columbia shared with Warner Brothers at the time and the MGM lot in Culver City that, several years later, would become the Columbia lot. His work on Blue Thunder by this time was mainly approving minor tweaks to the soundtrack and prepping promotional media for the movie theaters, television stations, and radio channels. His editor on War Games would continue to work on his own whenever Batam was elsewhere. Columbia had high expectations for Blue Thunder and would have its first public screenings at a handful of sneak previews in Minneapolis, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Southfield, Michigan, and Springdale, Ohio on the last Saturday in January 1983. 
Columbia would give Blue Thunder its first official theatrical engagements in West Germany two weeks later, where it became an instant success, the highest-grossing Columbia film in the country since Close Encounters five years earlier. In America, Columbia would book the film as the opening night presentation for the prestigious Filmex Film Festival in Los Angeles in mid-April, and have two more nationwide sneak previews of the film at the end of April and the start of May, before opening the film on more than 1,500 screens on May 13th. 30 of those playdates would show the film in 70mm, one of only 13 movies to get any kind of 70mm release in 1983. A 70mm print with a six-track magnetic Dolby stereo soundtrack would often ensure a movie the best theaters in town, but most theaters that could play 70mm were waiting for another movie that would open two weeks later that was almost guaranteed to be the biggest film of the entire year, Return of the Jedi. The theaters that did play Blue Thunder in 70mm were two to six screen theaters that had the ability to play the large film format in multiple theaters. For its opening weekend, Blue Thunder would be the highest grossing film in the nation, earning more than $8.25 million. In its second week, the film would come in second to the schlocky 3D sci-fi movie Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, but still grossed more than $6.15 million. It would also take second the following week, Memorial Day weekend, where it would gross a respectable $6.24 million, but that would be nowhere close to Jedi's record-setting $30.5 million opening weekend. In his fourth weekend, Blue Thunder would fall to fifth place with $3.2 million in ticket sales. Jedi would still be the dominant film in the market, grossing more than $17.2 million, but it would also be beaten by Psycho 2, which came in second with $8.3 million, The Man with Two Brains, which came in fourth with $3.5 million, and War Games, which would come in third with $6.23 million. But to be fair, War Games only opened in 843 theaters, while Jedi was still playing in more than 1,000, Psycho 2 in 1,448, and The Man with Two Brains in 1,203. Even Blue Thunder was still in more than 1,400 theaters. Still, this would be one of the very few times in box office history where one director would have two films in the top five of any week. Blue Thunder would continue to fall slowly but surely. By its seventh week, it would fall out of the top ten. And by its ninth week, it would be grossing less than a million dollars a weekend. It would continue to play at dollar houses and drive-ins for another five months, completing its theatrical run with $42.3 million in ticket sales. War Games, on the other hand, would keep playing and playing and playing. While it never placed higher than third, and never concurrently played in a thousand theaters in any week, the film had what the industry calls legs. In the last 20 years or so, it would be very rare when a hit film would play in first-run theaters for four months or have a drop of less than 30% from week to week, but War Games was able to keep audiences coming in. It would be in War Games' sixth week of release when it would outgross Blue Thunder which had been out for nine weeks by that point, 
$41.71 million to $40.95 million. And it would continue to play in theaters until the end of 1983, where it finished up with $79.57 million in ticket sales. It also says something to the filmmaking process that not only did the film Batam take over two weeks into filming gross more in theaters, but also ending up being better embraced by critics. Blue Thunder supporters were mostly, yeah, we know it's implausible trash, but it's stupid fun, while War Games was generally embraced as a smart and entertaining thriller. Both films would receive Oscar nominations. Blue Thunder was tapped for a Best Editing nomination, while War Games got nods for Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound. Neither film would win in their respective categories. Seven months after Blue Thunder premiered in theaters, a spin-off television show would air its first episode on the ABC television network, which is odd because, well, if you've seen the movie, you know how it ends, and you know the story is definitely over at that point. But alas, it continued. James Farentino replaced Roy Scheider as a pilot of Blue Thunder, who was now Frank Cheney instead of Frank Murphy, while a young Dana Carvey replaced Daniel Stern as Frank's flight engineer, now named Clinton Wonderlove. The show also added two ground support members for Blue Thunder in a van dubbed Rolling Thunder. NFL legends Bubba Smith and Dick Butkus, best known off the field for their Miller Lite commercial appearances, played the officer supporting the flight crew on the ground. But the show would not get very good ratings and would be canceled after airing 11 episodes. In 2015, a remake of Blue Thunder was proposed by Columbia Pictures with a focus on drone technology to be produced by former Kevin Spacey producing partner Dana Brunetti and former New Line executive Michael DeLuca, but thankfully nothing has come out of those initial announcements to date. The same cannot be said for War Games, which did get a sort of sequel, War Games The Dead Code in 2008, and an interactive media reboot called Hashtag War Games in 2018. Neither was well-reviewed or well-received, and are pretty much forgotten today. John Batham would follow up this twofer with American Flyers in 1985, a bicycle racing drama best known today as being one of Kevin Costner's first starring roles. The film would not be a big success upon its initial release, but it would find audiences on VHS and cable once Costner became a star a couple years later. In 1986, Batham enjoyed a surprise hit with Short Circuit, which would reteam him with his war game star Ali Sheedy. In 1987, he'd enjoy yet another hit with the Richard Dreyfus Emilio Estevez buddy cop comedy Stakeout. Then in 1990, another hit film, the Mel Gibson Goldie Hawn action comedy Bird on a Wire. And in 1991, continued public goodwill for Michael J. Fox would make a hit out of the not very good buddy cop comedy The Hard Way. But then Batam hit a brick wall. His 1993 American remake of La Femme Nikita, entitled Point of No Return, was a major disappointment with critics and audiences, as was his other 1993 film, Another Stakeout. 1994's skydiving action thriller Drop Zone was another dud, and it didn't help that there had already been a lousy skydiving movie three months earlier in Charlie Sheen's 
terminal velocity. 1995's Nick of Time would make it four duds in a row, a political thriller that would waste the talents of Christopher Walken and Charles S. Dutton. After 1998's Incognito, another train wreck, Batum would move from feature films back to television, where he has directed seven movies and 43 episodes of 21 television shows, including, ironically enough, three episodes of a series based on La Femme Nikita. As writers, Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks would only work together once more on the exceptional 1992 film Sneakers, which for me was the best film of that year. But together and individually, they would be responsible for writing and producing some fantastic films. They would produce Penny Marshall's Awakening, for which they would receive a nomination for Best Picture. Lasker would leave the film industry after Sneakers, while Parks would become a producer for Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, and along with his wife, Laurie MacDonald, would help bring such films as Twister, The Men in Black series, Deep Impact, The Mask of Zorro, Gladiator, AI, Minority Report, Road to Perdition, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, Sweeney Todd, Flight, and The Trial of the Chicago 7 to Life. If you've never seen Blue Thunder and or War Games, or it's been far too long since you've seen either of them, you can watch them both on Amazon Prime for free if you're a subscriber, or for free with ads on Tubi for Blue Thunder, or for free with ads on Fubo for War Games. But the movie you should really be watching, especially if you've never seen it before, is the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, which can currently be viewed for free with ads on Tubi, but it was just announced the day that I'm recording this episode that it will be released on Blu-ray later this summer. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and produced by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.